and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All, where your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you the darker and more sinister side of American history, uh, throwing a little bit of scandal there, and that's kind of our jam. Uh, we are here for March Women's History Month, and we have a really great episode for you today. I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And we are the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca. And we are here um, with, I think, a particularly juicy topic. Uh, It is Women's History Month, and I will say this every episode. Every month is Women's History Month because women's history is American history. American history is women's history. However, this is the month that we take a little extra time to focus in on women. Speaking of kind of special women and uh, a special focus, we are doing a special challenge right now with our Patreon page. If you're a patron listening to this podcast right now, thank you so much. We love you guys immensely. You have kept us going this year. I mean, literally keeping the lights on, keeping this podcast going. We love doing the pod. We want to keep doing it into the future, but we need a little bit more support to do that. So we're trying to gain a handful of more new patrons. So not too many more, just a few. If every one of our patrons referred one person, we would reach our goal. So we're asking for your help. If you know somebody who likes the podcast and isn't a patron yet, or you know someone who might like the podcast, recommend it to them. If we reach our patron goal, we are going to give you a whole special series of episodes in addition to your regular episodes. And Rebecca, what will those special episodes be about? The special episodes are going to be about first ladies. We've never done a full length first lady treatment um, and we want to really much, very much. There are so many great first ladies and we're not talking about just your Jackie Kennedys and your Eleanor Roosevelt's and your Mary Todd Lincoln's. We want to talk about like Julia Tyler and Francis Folsom Cleveland and Grace Coolidge, like some of the lesser known, but super cool and interesting women uh, who have been uh, married to our chief executives. Uh, and we really want your help to do that. So um, refer, become a patron. Uh, if you've been thinking about it, refer your friends to the pod uh, and we'll have a special poll uh, where you, the patrons get to pick which first ladies we discuss. This is going to be really exciting, and um, I, we're so close to our goal, so uh, we hope we can just pick up a few more patrons, and that's just going to help us be able to continue to do this podcast in the future. So moving into our topic today, it's Women's History Month, and we are going to delve into a story that I think most people think they know. I think most people acknowledge that what they know about it is probably not right because it's been out in our pop culture in um, lots and lots of inaccurate ways. And yet, I think it's still a story that is untold. And it's fascinating to me because we don't actually talk a lot about teenage girls in our history, but we should. Teenage girls have been at the center of so much of American history. So when we talk about women's history, I want that to include girls uh, and teenagers. And so we are going to talk about Pocahontas. Yeah, we are. Everybody's heard the name and they like, I feel like there's an overview that everybody kind of has this, like we have this shared collective experience of Pocahontas and like, as you're probably not going to be surprised to learn, almost none of that's true. (laughs) That's one of my favorite things uh, that we do whenever you start an episode. It's like everything you think you know about this person is probably wrong. Yeah, probably. (laughs) And it is a travesty because of the handful of women that we often get taught about in school, Pocahontas is one of them. And so she is the one that does get taught, I think, or gets included or touched on. And yet so much of what we learn about her is, is incorrect. So yeah, let's, let's break it down. 
And like so many other people in history, like the stuff that she should be famous for is actually kind of much cooler than the stuff that she is famous for. But let's start with just a, a little bit about names. There are several Native American names of both people and places in this episode that we are going to probably mispronounce. Let's just get that out there. We apologize in advance. Pocahontas was not her real name. I know. You want it to be, but it's not. Pocahontas is a nickname, and we know this because of one of the people who met her. So this is actually does come from a primary source. And it basically means kind of little rascal, little flower. Like she was the implication of the nickname and the implication of her and the sources is that she was kind of like a little wild child, but like in a cute way. She was born Matoica which seems to have been her secret name. They Apparently native tribes had, or at least hers had a, um, you had a, a name that you knew were known by, in her case, that's Emma Newt. Uh, but your secret name is, uh, you don't give it out to people unless you really trust them because it, uh, it, they can invite bad spirits. So Matoica seems to have been her uh, secret name. Uh, and she is the daughter of Powhatan, who that also is not his name either. <laughs> Um, he's the leader of the Powhatan people. So if you've ever wondered why they named the people after the leader, Powhatan seems to have been an honorific that his people called him. And the English colonists thought that that was his name. And so that's what they called him. We're going to call him that because that's what everybody knows him as. But his given name was Wahun Seneca. We're going to call him Powhatan. He is a powerful chief. So he seems to have been not a local or even like a regional chief. He was like sort of the big chief. He was kind of a big deal. He had basically the Algonquins in the Tidewater area, which is like southeastern Virginia. He controlled a lot of that sort of area. Pocahontas seems to have been his special pet, like his sort of little mascot. And uh, he had lots of wives, though, and possibly over 100 children. There's really no way to know. You know, it, it bene- it, there are benefits to being the big, the big kahuna, the head, mm-hmm. the head honcho, being at the top of the food chain there. Sure, yeah. He had many wives and lots of little children. Um, her mother, Pocahontas's mother, is unknown. It's possible that she died in childbirth, but the truth is we know nothing about her, even her name. She's born in 1595 or 1596, somewhere in that range. And then there's John Smith. Hmm. (laughs) Um, So the common story, do you want to do the common story, Becca? You want to tell us the like? Sure. So I think what people generally learn about Pocahontas is they envision her of some vague age, but usually older teen to young woman. I think often when she's depicted in pop culture or in even textbooks, she looks older than she probably was at the time that they met. But she um, is kind of the story goes that John Smith, you know, he's he's out there. He's mapping Virginia and he's riding around and checking out trade routes. And, um, you know, he's spending time in Jamestown and things are going, you know, not so well. And uh, he's going to have an interaction with the Powhatans, it's going to go poorly. He's going to be captured. They're going to put him to death, right? He's going to be executed by this tribe. And then Pocahontas will save his life, right? She'll throw herself over him. She'll stop her father from killing him. Um, And she will be sort of this magical creature who will bring together the white 
colonists and settlers with the native tribe. Uh, and she's kind of this magical bridge. And sometimes the two of them have fallen in love. Uh, if you watch things like the, the, the completely inaccurate Disney version, sometimes it's just out of the goodness of her heart that she does this. But that's sort of the story that gets told. Yeah, not a lot of that is real. Um, so yeah, yeah. let's just start back up with a little bit of background on Jamestown. And Jamestown, there's a whole lot you could say about it. And we're just going to kind of skim through this. The colonists at Jamestown were a hot mess gang. They didn't know what the heck they were doing. They are going to arrive late in the year for planting. And they select, uh, and they have by this time diminishing food because they've been sailing across an ocean. <laughs> and they select an area in the tidewater that is literally like the tidewater. They decide to build their fort and they actually do build it because there's no one else there. And it turns out the reason no one else lives there is because no one else wants to live there. <laughs> they pick this very inhospitable area with bad water. They're surrounded by salt marshes. There's not a lot that they could grow, even if they had arrived in time enough to grow things. It's really a terrible idea. And the Powhatan people sort of keep their distance at first because they think, who are these people who've picked literally the least hospitable place on earth in order to start a settlement? And so the Powhatan people are like, why are these people so dumb? And... The Powhatans are also dealing with their own sort of infighting in their own confederacy. That's going to be a problem. And a lot of the Jamestown settlers don't want to farm. They're gentlemen. So they don't know how to do that. Which is really not a good plan to send a bunch of gentlemen who are A, not farmers, and B, don't really know how to work with their hands, and C, don't really want to learn <laughs> It's not even, I mean, they don't farm, but it's, it even goes as far as they're not carpenters. They're actually not sailors either. So, you know, they have difficulty on the journey. There's understandably talk of mutiny um, among uh, many of these ships that come over. In fact, John Smith is charged with um, mutiny and he was going to be put to death until it was revealed that um, he sort of had letters that made him one of the leaders. But, you know, these are guys that they don't want to build anything. They don't want to establish anything. They just want the work done for them. And so by the time John Smith arrives, their people had been at Jamestown for a while and they were still living in temporary housing. They still had not established good food sourcing. So it's like, you know, it wasn't like he was part of the first wave. He arrives and it's like, oh, this has been a mess for a bit. Yeah, it's a hot mess. And people like 80% of the original colonists died the first winter they're there. That does not let up. The starving winter, like the sort of vague notion we have of Jamestown is very similar to the vague notion we have of uh, Plymouth, which is they get there late and they starve that first winter. In Jamestown, they do. They starve that first winter and then they starve for like three subsequent winters. <laughs> like the star. They don't quite figure it out. Right. They don't figure out the starving time with Jamestown is like their third winter. So <laughs> something's not computing correctly. Um, and I don't mean to laugh because it's very serious and there did, were a lot of people that died, but it's just, it seems remarkable to me that you would think, oh, we'll just sail across an ocean and have someone else do the work. Who, who is that someone else that's going to do that work? I don't know. The other thing to mention, and this is a note, so we're proper historians. we got to talk about our sources. And I was doing a lot of research into this. There's not a lot of source material, like primary source material for any of this. 
No. Like Pocahontas has been extensively written about, but most of it is second, third, fourth hand sources. It's people who are writing about people who knew her maybe. And there's really only like three authentic sources, for, particularly from her early years. Later on in life, uh, we'll talk about this, she gains a bit of fame and there are more people who know her and write about that. But for this early part of Jamestown, there's like three sources, one of which is John Smith. And John Smith is an incredibly unreliable narrator. He was, John Smith was like about the monies and the fames. An opportunist would be yeah. how I would put it. You know, and we see this in the way he interacts with other men at Jamestown. He's constantly finagling. He's constantly sort of whichever way the wind is blowing, he's going to pair up and build partnerships because there was a lot of instability within Jamestown because of all the difficulties. And when when there's an opportunity to make money elsewhere, he ditches and he, you know, I'm going to go explore the Chesapeake and, and map that out. I'm, so, you know, he writes about her but not the first few times he writes about this. She comes into his story much later and at a time where like she's already better known and so capitalizing on her fame. So there's a lot of questions about what John Smith, a lot of questions about how accurate anything he writes really is, but certainly related to Pocahontas. So the other main source we have for this area is a bi by a guy named William Strachey, who's super fascinating and I'll have a note about him in a minute. But Strachey mentions Pocahontas. He, in fact, he's the reason we know that, that Pocahontas is a nickname. And he mentions that she was known to the people, the colonists at Jamestown, mentions that John Smith knew her, but does not mention this sort of incident that John Smith talks about. And in fact, in John Smith, his first two accounts of Jamestown do not mention this life-saving incident at all. Completely skip over it. And I don't know. I would think that if some like magical person came out of the ether to save my life in front of the king, that would be something I would write down. So the fact that he hasn't written it down, John Smith doesn't write it down in his first two accounts of Jamestown is to me highly suspect. The other thing about John Smith that's suspect is by the time he does, like Becca said, by the time he does write about how Pocahontas saved his life, she's much older he's obviously much older and she's already famous. Plus he also records a similar, John Smith records a similar incident when he goes to Turkey. Like there's a similar sort of indigenous group of people where a young girl saves his life by laying her body on top of his. Convenient. So very suspect, this John Smith. And it's possible that neither of those, any of those events happen, that he got it from a book somewhere. So John Smith is an incredibly unreliable narrator, and it is entirely possible that this whole episode didn't happen at all. He is, what is certain is that John Smith met Powhatan and probably encountered Pocahontas in the midst of that. She seems to have been like her father's little mascot. So it's entirely possible that they like ran into each other. We do have, there are like notes in his hand of the two of them like would sit down and like try to converse with each other. Like she'd write down stuff in, or he, he would write down things that she was saying and they would talk about basic translation things. But the thing is, when he meets Pocahontas, she's like 12, 11, 12. So there's no love affair here. 
I would hope not. It's possible he's misinterpreting some kind of sort of native adoption ritual that the the Powhatan tribe was going to try to make him part of their tribe, make him sort of an honorary. uh, Some sort of initiation as opposed to an attack. Yes, because it just doesn't seem particularly likely that the Powhatans are going to really piss off the colonists by killing one of them. That doesn't seem strategic or particularly smart. Yeah, there's some, there's some, you know, some people who believe that Smith might have been caught trying to steal food. And that may have possibly caused some disagreement, but it seems highly unlikely based on the little reputable stuff we have that he was being put to death by or, you know, was about to be executed, that it was much more likely he didn't understand some sort of ritual or ceremony and interpreted it that way. Uh, And it's important to keep in mind, and we touched on this in the Plymouth episode, is we forget that there is a lot of infighting within Native tribes. There is just like in any other group, people trying to shore up power. And so Powhatan does see an opportunity Mm -hmm. as these men are arriving in Jamestown to potentially shore up some partnerships that will strengthen his claim to being the head of his people and strengthen in general, the Powhatan Confederacy's sort of hold along the coastline. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense knowing what we know about Powhatan, which we know a little bit more about him and his life in general, that he would have immediately just tried to kill this guy. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. And it's it's also notable that, you know, the English had guns and the Powhatans did not. So that's going to play a role here. And Powhatan seems to have known that there, again, like Massasoit in Plymouth, there are more people coming. There are more colonists coming, and it is probably not a great plan to piss them off from the get-go. So we don't know a ton about Powhatan, but we know this much. Um, He doesn't seem to have been rash in any way. He seems to have been very thought out and sort of strategic in his thinking. And so that's kind of it with Pocahontas and John Smith for the moment. He is not actually going to stay in Jamestown very long. Like Becca said, he finds greener pastures that he wants to go explore. And if we're, it sounds like we're kind of taking the piss a little on John Smith. It's because he kind of deserves it. He was very much a glorified pirate. I will go, I'll I'll go there. (laughs) Well, and I should just mention like a lot of these men that were coming over they're they're doing it for their own opportunity and not necessarily that there's anything wrong with people wanting to make money per se. Um, But he's definitely like, I think like you said, he's one step above pirate, if not essentially a pirate. But I will give him one credit credit for one thing, which is many of these men, when they were writing about the new world, really sugarcoated it, really glossed it over. Because the whole idea was to get people to spend their money and come over. John Smith, while certainly playing into some of the propaganda of like, look at what this amazing Native girl did for me. She saved my life. So you're going to have a good relationship with the Native people if you know what to do. Um, And, you know, you can come over here and make a lot of money. He also was pretty honest about the fact that, like, don't come if you can't work. Don't come if you are expecting it to be like home. Don't come if you can't be industrious. Don't come if you're afraid to die. Um, And I that one thing I'll give him credit for is he was probably, I think, the most honest Although there were certainly some exaggerations and some some propag- you know propagating of some things uh, in his writing, but he was not going to lie about how hard it was, which they needed to hear because people, like you said, these gentlemen are sort of coming over and they have no idea what they're getting into. Right. And that is true of the other source that we have. William Strachey is an interesting guy, but Strachey kind of is an 
not an aristocrat, but a gently bred man who sort of falls on hard times and is like, hey, I'll just leave my debts in England and I'll go adventuring and what bad could happen. And Strachey just, this is my own little historical like thing. Strachey survives before he even gets to Jamestown. He survives a year long shipwreck in Bermuda. So his first ship, like he, they're bringing supplies and they run aground and he's there for almost a year in Bermuda. Strachey stays in Jamestown a very short amount of time. He makes his way back to London and is going to write an account of very, Strachey is Oxford educated. So he's going to write an account of his time at Jamestown and his shipwreck. The shipwreck, by the way, is going to to inspire a playwright that you may have heard of called William Shakespeare. So Shakespeare writes one of his final plays, The Tempest, based in part on Strachey's account of this shipwreck. So William Strachey's kind of fascinating. I love that you were able to bring this around to Shakespeare. Damn right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Strachey, the other thing that Strachey and and John Smith do that's sort of invaluable to historians is they leave the only phonetic dictionary of the Algonquin language in this area. So they leave us the like little tantalizing taste we have of uh, the language that Pocahontas and her father and their people would have spoken. So that's kind of invaluable too. Pocahontas's life goes on. She's a kid. Eventually she's going to get, it's possible that she gets married very young at 14 to a Native American. They, her husband was named Kokoum and they have a daughter, Kaoki, uh, who does live. Uh, her husband does not, but they, she does, Kaoki has descendants. Uh, and this is again, according to William Strachey, who's by this time, the secretary for the Jamestown colony. Pocahontas is going to get kidnapped by the English colonists. So that's the other thing that's important about Pocahontas is that the myth we have is that at some point she kind of goes to live with the English and decides that she prefers living with the colonists. And isn't that, and and it sort of reinforces all those sort of very white supremacist arguments of like, obviously if the natives were smart enough, they would prefer the English ways too. And so it reinforces all those stereotypes. The truth is she's going to be kidnapped by the English to help promote peace between the settlers and the uh, Native Americans. And how in the world you kidnap someone to promote peace, I honestly don't know. It is a reflection though of her value because of her ability to be a translator, her ability to sort of speak enough of both languages to bridge the gap. The fact that she clearly was special to Powhatan, uh, the fact that she's targeted for kidnapping is sadly a reflection though of her value. And it's how we know she was important. Yes, very much so. Her husband is going to get killed somewhere in there, and she ends up staying with the English. Uh, Her father uses her as a pawn to promote what becomes known as the Peace of Pocahontas. So basically, in order to sort of, her father sends emissaries, and the English say, hey, you know, we want a better relationship if you want to see her again. And her father's going to basically use their dependence on her. And the fact that the English view her as a princess and seem to view her as having elevated status, he's going to use that as part of his negotiations to promote sort of peace between the colonists and the Native Americans. It seems to Pocahontas that her father doesn't value her at all and has sort of cast her off to live with these people. And she's only like 15 or 16 at this time. And it seems to her that the colonists are being kind to her. So 
why not stick around since they're nice to her and they're feeding her and they're, you know, they view her with value. They treat her with deference. They, you know, refer to her as a princess. Why not stick around there rather than go back to her father who doesn't seem to value her very much. And she, at this point is uh, going to convert to Christianity. She sort of wholly embraces the English lifestyle and she changes her name back up. What does she change her name to? She chooses, uh, or, you know, John Rolfe chooses for her. It's unclear, but she takes the name Rebecca as her Christian name. So we share a name with her. Her marriage to John Rolfe to me is really interesting because it is you know, whether this was her intention or not, or whether this is what Powhatan was sort of hoping, it does help bring about a bit of like a peace among the settlers and the Powhatan people. They have commerce and trade. There's not a lot of trouble. There's no skirmishes. So there's definitely like, this is strategic. If, if, if Powhatan had, couldn't have planned it better himself in the way this sort of worked out, um, it like, you know, if he had forced her her to marry him, it might not have worked that way. But because of how things play out, you almost are like, was he sort of betting on her doing that? Because it works out really well for everybody yeah. involved, maybe who isn't Pocahontas. John Rolfe um, had been married before. His wife and child died on their way over. Um, so this was very common when you were making that passage. If you go and see these ships or replicas of these ships, these were tiny ships to be crossing the Atlantic. And so it was dangerous. He He's a widow, um, which was widower, which is not uncommon. He's also about 10 years older than Pocahontas. So he is older, although I guess for the time, not scarily so. And he was really torn about marrying her because of the fact that she was not born a Christian. Um, so when it comes to her decision or her transitioning into Christianity, I think it's important to note that Rolf probably felt very strongly about that. And we don't know how Pocahontas really felt herself about this transition religiously. We don't have her first person account. Maybe she went into it with a total open heart and mind. Maybe it was, I'm feeling a lot of pressure to do it. Maybe it's everybody else here. Is this, you know, I'm, I'm living with English and everybody else has this and I want to fit in. And again, she's young uh, at the time of their marriage. She's maybe, I will also mention that the British court doesn't like the marriage. And do you know why, Rebecca? There are obviously people who don't like it because she is uh, a Native no. American, but there are complaints because John Rolfe has no title, no lands. He has like no whatever. And he married an Indian princess. And there were people who felt he was bearing above his station. So there was, we do have in from British court, we do have sources that people thought he was overreaching, which is just sort of fascinating to think about. That's so interesting to me. He, he does and they establish a very sizable um, so that's good plantation um, farm uh, that still exists today, I believe. Very much. Yes, there it doesn't. There's no indication of whether this is a love match or not. Possibly it was. Possibly it was just expedient. Who knows? It's not really clear. They do get married though, and it does seem to have been you know, pretty okay for her. They have a kid pretty quickly. Uh, they marry in 1614. She would have been about 19, 18 or 19. And they have a son, Thomas. And then they're going to head to England in 1616. So she's about 20, 21 years old. 
and she's heading across the ocean uh, with her English husband and child. Uh, She, at this point, seems to have spoken decent English. It's possible she could write in English as well. And she's going to be the toast of London. Like she's a big deal in London. She's referred to as a princess and treated with deference. Uh, She becomes kind of um, a commodity on the sort of cocktail party circuit, as it were, back then. Uh, People want to see her. And she is living propaganda for that, for for the Virginia company, for any of it. It is, look at this beautiful young woman. Look, you can you can tame, right? It's that whole colonizing perspective. You, We can settle these people. We can tame them. They all want to be Christian. They all want to be like us. Uh, and look, look at how nice she is, how polite she is. This is what it's going to be like. Um, so she is definitely being used in that way to sort of promote the way that they hope it will be as more and more British uh, colonists go over. Yes, she is walking, talking propaganda. Clearly, once they're enlightened, they want to be English because the English are the summit of world civilization. Uh, and so look at look her. And she's also kind of, an, she's definitely a curiosity and an oddity. She's a foreign princess. She must have looked exotic. She probably had tattoos. And so just, you know, very, there's a, a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of just general human curiosity. And it's also possible, and I just love this, it's possible that at this time when she's in London, she meets Squanto, who's another of person we've mentioned on our pod. We talked about him in the Thanksgiving pod. Squanto at this time was in London trying to make his way back to uh, the New England area. And there's every indication that they would have met. They lived like six blocks away from each other. And it seems remarkable that two Native Americans living in such close proximity would have not been introduced at some point. Uh, There's no documentation that they met, but it really is not a stretch to imagine. And had they met, they would have conversed in English, interestingly. They both spoke a version of Algonquin, but two very different sort of dialects of it. And so they would not have been able to converse in their native tongue. And I would love to know what they talked about. So how's your, you know, English experience going? (laughs) How's London for you? So she becomes very much a, and you hate to say pawn, but that's kind of what she does become. And this is the part, this is the point at which once she returns to London, this is the point at which John Smith, who by this time is himself a decade older and a decade deeper in debt, uh, he is going to write a letter to no less than the queen talking all about this young Indian princess who saved his life. And so this is where the story comes from. Uh, At this point, the incident that he talks about is 10 years in the past, and Pocahontas is herself independently famous um, apart from him. Of note, at least, right, of curiosity and note. And so it is hugely suspect that this is the time in which he decides to write this they do we know they met in london at some point in there but yeah he is i think trying to cash in on her 15 minutes of fame um but this is where that story comes from and john smith the way that he kind of talks about it he hints that there might have been some sort of romantic connection just the sort of and it's just difficult to imagine like Like, it's one thing to imagine him having a romantic connection with a woman of 20, but it sort of seems like he's projecting who she was at that moment back to who she was when he knew her originally. It just seems very untidy would be my way I put it. (laughs) 
So they're in England less than a year and they decide to return to Jamestown. And her husband's got a lot of interest there. John Rolfe is going to build, has a plantation. He's going to build things and it's going to be great. And so they are going to get on a boat, but she immediately gets very sick. Like literally the second they leave land, she gets incredibly ill. They go back to Gravesend, which uh, she dies immediately, two or three days later. In mid-March of 1617, she's about 22 years old. She is buried there at Gravesend. It is possible that she was poisoned. There seems to have been a rumor that someone poisoned her, although probably more likely it was a disease she just didn't have an immunity to. Also, it could have been like a bad, a pregnancy gone wrong. Like there's a bunch of different things that could have happened to her. A lot of stuff that could have killed you back then. But I I think, you know, it's interesting to me. There's always, I think, theories about notable people, but the likelihood of her being poisoned seems so small. And there were so, like you said, there's smallpox, smallpox, there's tuberculosis. There's any number of things her, her immune system had never encountered. Not to mention, like you said, the risks of getting pregnant. Um, And so- She's buried there at Gravesend. There actually is, they, we don't know where her, the cemetery has since been sort of redone with, along with the church, there's a renovation. So we don't know exactly where she's buried, but there's a marker and a statue of her uh, in Gravesend, if you ever end up going there. John Rolfe might not have been the nicest guy, certainly not a candidate for father of the year. He is going to abandon their son, Thomas, who's also sick, who's about like two and he gives them to like family. He was like, here, take care of my sick child. His mother's dead. It's rough. And he leaves. He just gets back on the boat and goes back to Virginia, which is not really great. Um, he never sees his son again. Rolf dies in an Indian massacre like five years later. So Rolf, the Thomas Rolf, their child grows up not knowing either of his parents. Thomas Rolfe is going to grow up, though. By this time, his father's land is worth some money. So he's going to sail to Virginia when he is a young adult, early 20s. He is uh, inherits land from his father. He inherits land from his mother. And so he's like super wealthy and kind of landed gentry in Virginia. He becomes very rich, marries into the first families of Virginia, and proceeds to have some kids. And they have descendants still to this day. There are many people, including Thomas Jefferson, I think, who claimed direct descent from Pocahontas. Yeah. Well, and the plantation, Verena Farms, that Rolf had purchased uh, would ultimately be home to Martha Jefferson's husband. And by Martha Jefferson, I mean Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Martha. And at one point they lived there or the man she married lived there. So there is a connection, I know, with the plantation. But yeah, like... Thomas Rolfe's grand or daughter and then grandchildren all had lots and lots of children and um, they survived, which is helpful. And they were marrying within Virginia Gentry. So yeah, there are people like Edith Wilson, who was a former first lady, who uh, is a descendant of Pocahontas. Uh, Senator Shaheen uh, also had that claim. So there's a kind of interesting that despite how little we know about Pocahontas, she actually has sort of a robust set of descendants today through her son. What is particularly interesting to me is that Thomas Rolfe sort of sails back and he's landed gentry. Like he's got money at this point, but because his mother was native American, there's some question about whether people want to marry into that. 
And so in his sort of lifetime, he's, it's kind of, you know, fathers are like, I don't know if I want my girl, you know, marrying with somebody who's a mixed race. And then several generations later, like knowing that you're descended from Pocahontas is, has social cachet. So it's interesting to see how things change as far as like where you come from and who your parents and your antecedents are. Um, being descended from Pocahontas is a hundred years after her death is a big deal, but for her son, it's kind of an impediment. So it's really kind of interesting how that all plays out. But yes, John Rolfe still has descendants. And it is also the story from the um, Powhatan tribe is that her daughter that she had with her first husband, she also had living descendants and very likely has uh, descendants that live on today uh, in the Powhatan tribe that still exists in that area. So Pocahontas, um, her life was short, but she still has living descendants, which is, I guess, all you can really ask for. Yeah, and it's it's sort of amazing to me, you know, her life is so short, her legacy is so big, though. And a lot of the figures we talk about on this podcast, I think particularly women that we talk about, don't necessarily have a lot of like, cultural representation or a lot of uh, legacy down the line. That's not the case for Pocahontas. I mean, she's sort of been part of American history from the beginning. I mean, she's been on postage stamps. There are uh, statues and memorials to her. But, you know, we have people writing about her and John Smith as early as the early 1800s that we have documented in, in books that were being sold in the United States. She had her story put on the stage in the early 1800s. Uh, one of the first silent films made in the early 1900s was about her. Um, she has been just constantly out in our in our pop culture. Uh, and then certainly, as I'm sure many of you listening, you know, the, a big Disney film, the big Terrence Malick movie, oh gosh, now like 15 years ago, where they tried to sort of maybe get a little bit more historically accurate. She's well represented in art. We have uh, portraits of her, we have statues of her. Although of course we don't have a great sense of what she looked like because the handful of things that were done during the time that she was alive were done by British artists were done representing her towards the end of her life and were done again in that sort of propagandist style of look at this Native woman who has become a proper Christian English woman. Yes, the very famous portrait of Rebecca Rolfe uh, as a sort of proper English woman, I believe it resides in DC uh, at the portrait gallery, the original. And it's very, she's all kitted out in the sort of rough collar and the very much the signifiers of wealth for the era. And it's very much like she's playing her part in the propaganda of her day. Whether she knows it or not is unclear, but she seems to have been very much sort of, and that's the sort of um, seductive thing about the legend of Pocahontas. Like she is really evidence that the English culture obviously is going to triumph. Uh, and so that's part of makes English, the English feel good about their colonization that, oh, if these natives were just properly educated, they would all want to be English. Uh, and so there's very much this sort of feel good aspect of her story for a lot of the, not only English colonists, but later American, uh, early Americans in the area that's just sort of very like, we're just the, our civilization's better. And once they're properly enlightened, they will want to be part of our civilization too. So there's a lot of propaganda. And it's really interesting to me that when you strip away the layers upon layers upon layers of things that we have added onto her, it's based on very tenuous uh, historical record. Like the actual historical record of her is 
not there's not a lot there particularly this early incident it is very likely that the incident that made her famous never happened at all which i find fascinating so that is the story of pocahontas and i'm so glad that you proposed doing this episode because I do find her story so interesting. I wish that we knew more. I wish that we knew more from more reliable sources. I wish that we knew more about her life with the Powhatan tribe before John Smith ever comes along. Um, because I think it's so interesting that she was among potentially hundreds of siblings. Uh, she was sort of the chosen one. She had been educated enough, right, to serve as a translator. She seemed to hold a special place. And it would be so interesting to know more about that as opposed to just sort of speculate on it. Um, and I, and I love that her story is known because I think it's an important story. I think it's an important moment in our history, right? When we're in this colonizing era, understanding what the English are doing, how they're doing it, how they're using Native Americans as pawns and as propaganda. Um, but I wish we just knew more about her that was substantiated. And that came from her and not just what her husband wrote or not just what yes. people in the British court wrote about what they heard or, you know, some of the Jamestown settlers wrote things after the fact about what they thought they knew. And none of that is very, very reliable. Right. And it's also interesting to me, I mean, this is Women's History Month, but like so much of Pocahontas is seen through the gaze of men. You know, we don't have anything in her handwriting. We don't know what particularly she looked like growing up. We only know sort of what men thought of her. Um, and so I feel like that's kind of an interesting way to look at her as well. Like there's very little places where we have her voice and that's kind of sad. That's Pocahontas. I will just end this episode on a note saying Matt and I, my husband decided to rewatch the Disney Pocahontas because we were down, we went down to Jamestown last summer during kind of the, the pandemic times and went and like walked around and just, it was his first time down there. And I, it just really made me want to like revisit how she's represented and how wrong a lot of these representations are. And I would not recommend it guys. The songs are still bangers, but it is just so wrong. So very, very wrong. I've never seen it to be honest. I mean, I know the I've, story. I can't, but... I can't in good conscience recommend it. No, doesn't seem very, no. Mm -mm. <laughs> Um, so that's just my little, my little two cents on that. This was a great episode, Rebecca. Thank you so much for choosing this topic. Cause I think it was one worth doing next week. We are talking about a woman who you and I have just both come to like be in love with Florence Flo Kennedy. Um, we're going to be bringing it into the 20th century. So we'll be jumping 400 years ahead, but I'm really excited. This is somebody who you may know if you watch the Hulu series, Mrs. America, but otherwise I think she's a figure that has gotten overshadowed, but she has so many interesting things in her life. We're going to be talking about all kinds of crazy stuff next week. Uh, and then coming up after that, uh, you'll be talking about Frances Perkins, uh, another woman that we both just deeply admire. So I'm really excited about the rest of Women's History Month. Mm -hmm. If you're a patron, be on the listen to, you're going to have a special episode this month that's going to be a little tasty taste of what we're going to be doing with First Ladies. So be sure to keep um, your eyes peeled for that special patron only episode. 
Yes, it's very exciting. We are got a great rest of Women's History Month and we're starting to think about April. So if you have ideas, something you want to cover, something you want more depth on, feel free to pitch the pod. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts. Um, and so we'll talk about tackle that in April. Um, we love to communicate with our listeners generally. Uh, you can find us on all the Instagram, Facebook, Twitters, uh, at tour guide tell all um, on Twitter we're at tour guide tell uh, feel free to engage with us you can even email us at tour guide tell all at gmail.com uh, we'd love to speak to you thanks again to our patrons um, that you guys are the bestest and uh, we will be back in your ear holes next week uh, thanks so much for coming along gang thank you guys for listening we will see you next week bye, bye. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.